come to our scripture reading, which is from uh, the book of Ruth, which you'll find uh, on page 267 if you have a church Bible. Page 267, book of Ruth, and we're reading chapter 1. So, more women in distress. Naomi and Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Marlon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where they'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you, as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud, and said to her, We'll go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, No, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me. Even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons. Would you wait until you grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It's more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, She stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred up because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? 
Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess. Sorry, Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Thanks very much, Philip and Judy. I'm not sure I can say more by Tess. I don't know whether you've been reading the papers this week, but um, there's been the inquest into the terror attacks of um, July 7, 2005. And amongst the uh, tragic events of that day, there have been stories of great heroism. One of those was of uh, a guy called Steve Hucklesby, uh, father of uh, two from Leamington Spa. Uh, apparently he entered the, the carriage, which had been totally devastated by the bomb. Uh, he heard cries for help. He apparently used the handrails to swing over the, the crater caused by the bomb blast uh, to reach somebody who was still breathing and try and give help. Um, all he'd done was, of course, in first aid himself. Uh, he then moved on to a man who had serious injuries to his leg and um, ankle by holding the limb in the air uh, for half an hour to stop the flow of blood. And uh, once paramedics arrived, he remained holding torches and drips and reassuring passengers in their distress. We read stories of selfless courage like this, and people say, well, it just restores our faith in mankind. But I hope it does more than that. I hope it restores people's faith in the maker of humankind, the one who made us in his image. Maybe it shows that however marred that image may be by sin, that there is still a great capacity for good in us. We're starting a new sermon series on the book of Ruth, which provides a great demonstration of selfless love, of giving up one's own comfort, one's own needs, for the sake of another. We're going to see in the loyal devotion of Ruth to Naomi and the kindness later on of Boaz to these two widows. We'll see in them examples of God's own selfless love in action. Hopefully we ourselves will be moved to admiration and praise for God and want to do the same ourselves. But also, as we see Naomi's life transformed from what we're going to see here this, more, this evening is emptiness to fullness, from despair to hope, we're reminded of the work of redemption of Jesus Christ who promised the blessings of the kingdom of heaven to all those who would put their trust in him. Well, the book opens with the words, in the days when the judges ruled. I don't know what significance that uh, has to you, what the period of the judges brings up. Uh, It would have been between um, about 1400 BC and 1100 BC. Uh, It would have been a period in Israel's history marked by moral decline. If you read through the book of Judges, you see a pattern that uh, follows through. You'll see Israel turning away from the Lord things going bad. Israel calling out to the Lord for help and for mercy. And the Lord replying and having mercy on them, raising up a new judge to lead them. But again, Israel turning away from the Lord. 
Again, things going bad. Again, calling out to the Lord for mercy. Once again, the Lord showing mercy. And so on, and so on. But going in an ever-decreasing, ever-downward cycle, culminating in Israel calling out instead of a judge for a king, because all the other nations around them had kings, forgetting that they already had the king of kings, God himself. Well, that is in some ways the depressing spiritual context in which this uh, book takes place. This book is not just a, a story, a fascinating story as it is. It's, it's poetry, it's full of imagery, it's full of literary devices, it's carefully constructed with each chapter ending on a bit of a cliffhanger. Names here take on tremendous significance, as we will see. There's great, great irony. We just look at the opening two verses of this chapter one as they set the scene. We're told that um, there was a famine in the land and a man from Bethlehem went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Bethlehem. And they, a word that means house of bread. So what it's saying is that um, in a house of bread, there is no bread. Why is that? Well, maybe because of the, the, the spiritual famine that there was in the land. Maybe it was God's judgment as a result of the disobedience of his people. We're warned. Uh, they were warned about that in Deuteronomy if they continue to disobey him. We're in this place at this time. We are introduced to a man called Elimelech and his family. What we're going to do this evening uh, as we look at this first chapter is focus on three characters. Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and his daughter-in-law Ruth. And hopefully in the process, hear what God has to say to us through them. We're going to start with, uh, start with Elimelech. And as I call this first point, the fickleness of Elimelech. If you read the commentators, different commentators will... Um, give you different views on him. Some will say, well, the text doesn't actually criticise him for his actions and therefore, you know, it would be unfair of us to do the same. What makes up our individual characters is our, our decisions, our choices. What we decide to do, what we decide to say, reflects who we are as a person, what is going on inside us. And not only does the Bible give us the message of good news, of salvation, it gives us instruction as to how to live a life that is pleasing to God. It tells us of God's character and how we should respond to him. And so I think there are lessons that we can learn from Elimelech here in this passage. His name has a meaning as well. It means, my God is king. Again, I think there's meant to be a certain irony there because what does he do when there's no food in Judah? He gives up hope in his God, his king, and he goes off to a foreign land where they worship other gods, where there is another king. And we're told in the Bible that we are meant to trust in God, that he will provide for us as he has always provided for his people. But Elimelech takes his wife, his two sons, for whom he's responsible to the country of Moab. Well, before we judge him on this decision, what do we know about Moab? There's a map, I think, going to be coming up um, over the next page, which shows where Moab is. It's the one in purple to the, uh, the east of the, uh, the Dead Sea there. It's uh, on a high plateau. And it's mentioned in the Bible in several places. Uh, Moab was the, the son of Lot, uh, someone who was born out of uh, incest with uh, his eldest daughter. You can read about that in Genesis 19. And the land was populated by the descendants of Moab. 
We read later on that Balak, king of Moab, called for a prophet, Balaam, to curse Israel. And as a result, Moabites were excluded from the assembly of God. As Israel prepared to cross the Jordan later on, they camped in the plains of Moab. And they were seduced by, the men were seduced by Moabite and Midianite women to participate in idolatrous practices. And we're also told that in the days of the judges, the king of Moab, King Eglon, he invaded Israel as far as Jericho and uh, oppressed Israel for 18 years. That is the sort of place that Elimelech is taking his family to live. And you have to ask yourself, why would he do that? You know, it seems like he was desperate to escape death, death due to famine, and would do anything to do so. The irony, of course, being that he still died in a foreign land. Now, yes, we do need to be careful about drawing too many conclusions from just a brief description of Elimelech, but in some ways that is damning enough, isn't it? If all he's remembered for is that he took his family out of the land that God had given to Israel, to a foreign land where they worshipped other gods, that is quite sad. The only inheritance for his two sons, Marlon and Killian, is to leave them isolated in a foreign land where they end up marrying Moabite women who worshipped other gods. Well, so far the start to Ruth is fairly depressing, isn't it? Here is a family that is going out full of hope. And within the space of two verses, in a time span of ten years, all three men die. And as it says in verse 5, Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Imagine how she must feel. She went out as a wife, as a mother, and now she's lost everything. Are there any lessons that we can draw from this uh, for us today? Can we apply this? Well, what I would say is I think changing your circumstances won't help if you've got a problem with God in your relationship with God. Because on the surface, Elimelech just seemed to be doing the best for his family, didn't he? By going somewhere where there was food. But underneath this appeared to be an unwillingness to trust in God. And it's very tempting in life to try and escape from a problem, to flee a difficult situation. Maybe a problem with work. Maybe a problem in your neighbourhood. Maybe in your church. Maybe in your marriage. And the temptation is, if I just get out of here, things will be okay. The grass will be greener on the other side. The trouble is, often when people flee a situation, they're often taking their problems with them. And they're just transferring them to a new place. And if that is you, maybe, maybe you're thinking that the same. Are you changing whatever it is because you're sure that God wants you to change? Or is there something else that's making you dissatisfied? You know, look at whether there is something in your life, in your relationship with the Lord, your relationship with others, that you need to deal with first. Because if you carry that with you, then just changing the situation won't solve the problem. It will merely shift it somewhere else. And for, for those who are fathers and husbands, um, you do have a tremendous responsibility for your wives and for your children. What would be your criteria for moving your family somewhere else? Would it be better job prospects? Would that be for you? Would it be because you're going to a nicer place? Maybe it's abroad. Maybe it has the appeal of living in a, a foreign exotic climate. But as someone like myself who has lived abroad, who has been in a situation with a nice apartment opposite a beach, 
I can tell you that you soon take that sort of thing for granted. The most important thing, wherever you are, is a right relationship with God. Unless you are sure God wants you to move, then it may be more likely that he wants you to remain where you are and work through any issues that you may have. Well, however much we think Elimelech may have been at fault, the amazing thing about this story is that God doesn't allow man's foolishness, doesn't allow man's disobedience to prevent him from exercising his gracious providence. Let's come on to to Naomi, the bitterness of Naomi. Again, we have great irony in the use of names here, because Naomi means pleasant. And as we see later in the chapter, she wants to change her name. Not because she doesn't like Naomi, but she changed it to Mara, because Mara means bitter. And in many ways, Naomi has reason to be bitter. After all, she's lost her husband, she's lost her son in the space of ten years. She has two daughters-in-law. But it doesn't sound like there's much else to keep her in Moab. It hasn't turned out to be the land of promise that that they had thought. And so when she hears in verse 6 that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters prepared to return home from there. They'd left Judah because there was no food. Now there is some food, they might as well go back. It does seem to be a very opportunistic relationship with God, doesn't it? But at least she does still have some sort of relationship with God. After all, she encourages her daughters-in-law to return to their homes. Look at verse 8, what she says to them. She says, May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. But it doesn't seem like returning to Judah was a returning to the Lord in repentance. It's not a sense of a prodigal son returning home, coming to his senses. The prodigal son returned home. You may remember the story in, uh, in Luke saying, I don't deserve to be called your son. You treat me as one of your servants. But Naomi's attitude is not humility, it's bitterness. She blames the Lord for what has happened to her. She knows that she won't have any more sons. She probably won't remarry. And there's a sense of self-pity, as she says to her daughters-in-law in verse 13. She says, it's more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. But the telling verse is when she finally arrives back in Bethlehem. And look what she says to the women who come out and think, who is this? Is this really Naomi? Look at verse 20. She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Four times she blames God for her troubles. And in many ways you can understand that, can't you? She didn't really do anything to deserve to lose her family. And some of you may have experienced similar tragedies. You may know others who have experienced tragedies. Our hearts go out to the Christians at the church in Baghdad last week who experienced that bomb attack. There would have been those there who lost husbands, who lost sons, daughters and wives. 
And it's impossible to know how we ourselves would react until we experience that same kind of tragedy. Let's just turn briefly to the, uh, the book of... Um, actually, don't turn, I'll read it out. The book of Job. Listen to how Job um, responded when he'd been told that um, all of his children had been killed, had been wiped out in an accident. This is what Job... This is what happens. Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. Describes his Incredible suffering, how he sat saying nothing for seven days and seven nights, how his friends didn't recognise him. And when he finally opened his mouth, he wished he'd just never been born. He says, I've no peace, no quietness, I've no rest, only turmoil. And the rest of the book describes his coming to terms with what has happened to him. And his coming back to that relationship with God and putting his trust again in God. None of us is immune from disaster. But the question is, how can we prepare ourselves when that disaster does come? How can we prevent ourselves from becoming bitter and blaming God like Naomi did here? I just want to suggest a couple of things. And first of those is to treat all of our blessings as gifts from God. A gift is something that we've received from someone else that we didn't really deserve. That we haven't really done anything to, to earn that we've no right to, to have, to enjoy. If we are parents here, then our children are all gifts from God. And it's easy to think that we decide when and, and how many we should have. But without God, we wouldn't have any children. That is why we have Thanksgiving services for our children, to remember where the thanks are due to God. But we don't stop thanking God there, do we? We need to keep thanking God throughout their lives. And second, to not assume that we will always have them. The Lord gave, Job said, the Lord has taken away. Our children, our belongings are not a gift that um, we can do, just do with as we please, when we want. They're actually a gift to be looked after on God's behalf while we can. Which is why parents dedicate themselves to bringing their children up in the instruction and the discipline of the Lord. To commit them to his care. And we do hope and pray that he will bestow his grace on them. That they will want to, to put their trust in him and serve him. And if we thought maybe more in those terms, then it would make a difference the way we would react if disaster should strike. It may also change the way we behave in relation to our children, that we would make more of each day as if it were our last. We may appreciate them more. But what Naomi hasn't realised here yet is that she isn't empty. She's not left with nothing. She has two daughters-in-law, and one of them is so faithful that she's determined to come back with Naomi. And the, the chapter ends, Naomi returned together with Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, who came back with her from the country of Moab. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This daughter-in-law is going to be a real blessing to Naomi. She just doesn't know it yet. 
And the chapter finishes there on a note of hope. It was the beginning of the barley harvest. You know, emptiness is about to be replaced with a fullness here. There is hope. Let's move on to Ruth, because here we see an inspirational example of Christ-like living. And we see that in the selflessness of Ruth. With Orpah, Naomi's other daughter-in-law, Ruth sets off with Naomi, and they're off back to Judah. They're both young, and Naomi realises that they'll probably be better off actually going back to their, their family, staying among their own people, where they can maybe find another husband. She knows they have their own mothers who will miss them. And so she thanks them, but says, look, I think it's better if you just go home. She releases them from any sense of obligation that they should feel towards her. But they obviously have a great deal of affection for Naomi, and they insist on coming with her. But Naomi tells them, look, just, just, just get real here. You know, your prospects are not going to be very good if you come back to me, to Judah. And at this, Orpah kisses her goodbye. She returns to her people. And I think the fact that Orpah actually returns serves almost to emphasise just how selfless Ruth is, doesn't it? You know, it would have held, held it against Ruth if she'd said, well, actually, yeah, I think I will probably go back with Orpah as well. But look at verse 14. Just look down at that. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Ruth clung to her. And this is not a clinging in the sense that Ruth desperately needed Naomi. This is not a, don't leave me clinging. This is, I won't, this is not a, I won't survive without you clinging either. It's um, a clinging that says, actually, you need me. I know you're being selfless yourself in sending me back. I appreciate what you're doing, but you're going to struggle on your own in Judah. And I want to help you. I want to come with you. I will stick with you whatever happens. It's like a marriage vow she's making here. Just look at it down there in verse 16. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. What a promise, what a promise. And so Naomi sees just how determined she is and gives up trying to persuade her to go back. And when we read this story, you can't help but ask yourself, can you, what would I have done in that situation? Would I have been a Ruth? Or would I have been an Orpah? You know, selfless up to a point, but then the selfishness, the self-interest begins to kick in, doesn't it? And if we're honest, I think most of us would probably be Orpahs. I mean, last week I was on the way to um, Aikman Street to uh, preach there in Tring. As I was driving through Cunnington, there was a guy there with his thumb up hitching a lift. And just in that split second, it's like, somebody here needs help. I've got somewhere to go to. And uh, I carried on and spent the rest of the journey regretting that I hadn't stopped to help him. We have these opportunities to come our way, don't we, to be selfless. But it's so easy to let them pass. And the thing is, as Jeff said this morning, though, we will never be perfectly selfless this side of heaven. There was only one who was perfectly selfless, and that was Jesus. And it's appropriate that we're doing this sermon series in Philippians in the mornings at the moment. 
Because there we've been looking at his selflessness. Let me just um, read for you again those great verses from Philippians 2. Talk about Jesus Christ. It's going to appear, I think, on the screen. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or exploited, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Someone who could have said, I'm God. I don't need to enter this world of humanity that people have messed up. I don't need to experience their pain and their suffering. I don't need to be treated unjustly. I don't need to be killed. Why would Jesus do that if he were God? And the answer, of course, is because he loves us. And even when we turn our backs on him, he clings to us because he knows that we need him and we can't live without him. And so if you're someone here this evening who's trying to to shrug him off, who's struggling spiritually, maybe you're trying to say to him, look, I'm not good enough for you, Jesus. I don't deserve you. You know, you go back to heaven where you belong. He's saying... You need me more than you think. I won't let you go. Without me, you will be lost and alone. I'm sticking with you. I will help you through this. Well, this chapter opens in despair, but it ends in hope. Despite the fickleness of Elimelech, the the bitterness of Naomi, there's the selflessness of of Ruth that shines through, a selflessness that looks ahead to the selflessness of Jesus. And even when we make mistakes, even when we may be angry at God, he doesn't give up on us. The selfless love of Jesus redeems us. Blessed be the name of the Lord.